Let's pray, please. Our Father, we do thank you for the words of not just Moses, but all the writers of Scripture. Thank you that in them we can have eternal life. Thank you that they do testify about your Son, Jesus. So I pray that as we search these Scriptures tonight, that you will help us to see and know and love and trust and follow Jesus alone. We pray in His name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. If you uh, don't have, uh, if you didn't bring your own Bible, there are some here uh, throughout the room, some here in the front. Uh, anybody need one? Okay. Acts chapter 16. If you're using a Bible from this room, I think the page is 792. I'm sorry? Can Maddie have a bulletin? I mean, I guess so. Here you go. I've got one. I want to start tonight uh, actually by talking about one of the uh, weaknesses of, I think, modern Christianity, or at least modern churches. It might seem weird to to, um, talk about what we're not good at, but I think that's probably healthy. Um, It seems to me that one of the weaknesses of modern Christian churches, I think not just ours, but uh, lots of Christian churches, is uh, the inability to connect what we believe, to connect our faith with, say, like the um, culture at large. Okay, so to make a connection between what we're doing in a room like this tonight and what happens the rest of the time that you're not here. Uh, because honestly, our time here is is really very limited compared to all the other things that you do in your, uh, in your life. So... Um, think about, you know, for, for those of you that are in school or that work full-time, or some of you I know do both. You have a, a job and classes that you take. So you are um, in those classes or you're at that job, for most of you, uh, somewhere somewhere probably at minimum of 30 or 35 hours a week. And for some of you, it's up more like 50 or 60 hours a week or more that you're doing one or both of those things. And so we get, on Wednesday nights and on Sundays, if you think about the times that we're actually all together, we get like, what, four hours, five hours maybe, uh, to, to try to inform what you're doing the rest of the time. So it's like a 10 to 1 ratio, uh, which, makes it, which makes it kind of difficult. So it might seem that there's not really much of a connection between what we're doing here and now and what you do the rest of your time. And even if you're not at school and work, you're probably involved in some form of other activity or entertainment. So you're always being informed, usually, uh, by something. So if you're, if you're involved in extracurriculars, you play uh, sports, you're in a band, you, you do art, uh, you take trips, you know, you're on uh, social media, you're watching movies and TV and listening to music, you're, you're receiving all kinds of input, video games, yep. So, so again, uh, factor all of the input that you're doing and the way your mind and life is being shaped and formed 
all the time with, what's, with what goes on here, and, and it might be hard to understand how what we're doing here connects to the rest of that. That could happen in several ways. Um, I'll, I'll, I thought of a few. It might just be that we're pretty ignorant that there even is a disconnect, or we underestimate the disconnect. In other words, maybe we think, well, okay, yeah, we, we, only, we only do spend a few hours in here like this, uh, but, you know, that's all we need. And so we don't recognize that there's maybe that kind of a disconnect. Um, so, sometimes I think also another weakness would be we try to make Christianity fit the culture. Um, and sometimes when you do that, we might compromise the truth of what we believe. So the church might think, you know, well, we need to be more appealing to the culture. We need to try to just be like the world, and then the world will like us and accept us. Normally, though, when you do that, um, the church really just becomes a lot like the world, doesn't it? There's really not, not much of a distinction there. And so we're really not um, turning the tide at all. We're really just kind of giving in to what the rest of our, what's normal in the rest of our lives. The other extreme, I guess, would be what, though? Instead of becoming exactly like the culture, it might be that we... Well, that would be ideal, right? Like if we engage it and change it, that's what we would want to do. But I guess another option would be like we try to remove ourselves from culture entirely, right? So we think um, we'll just shelter ourselves. We'll just kind of, uh, they can be out there and we'll be in here. And what we do is our own business. And, and so we just kind of um, retreat entirely. You know, we don't, want, we don't want them in and we don't want to be out there. And so we're just, we kind of keep our, our separation. Now, I like what Lily said, because I think Lily's, Lily's um, response would be the correct one. So ideally, we would, do, we would do what some people would call engaging the culture, right? We want to be, uh, I think the phrase that most people use, uh, and it's, I think, mostly biblical, would be in, to be in the world, but not of the world, of the world right? So, so don't um, separate yourself entirely from culture. But don't become like it either. Be involved in it, but be different than it. That would be, that would be ideal, right? So we don't want to cave to cultural pressure, but we don't want to retreat from it either. Now, we've seen throughout Acts, this is why I think it's relevant to what we're talking about tonight, uh, throughout Acts, we've seen the church engaging the culture. So Acts is a good study for us to think about maybe how to do this. So when I talk about engaging the culture... Um, the, way I, the way I heard, uh, some of you know Francis Chan, Bible teacher. Uh, maybe you've seen some of his videos or heard him preach. Um, he says, what the world really needs is Christians who are not socially awkward. So, uh, and I think that's pretty well said. Like, to be, um, to be socially engaged, but also standing firm. Like, it's okay to be different. So the world would try to tell you that, well, if you're different from me, then, then you must hate me. Well, that's not really true at all. Uh, to be different does not at all mean to be unloving. Um, because if, if we really stand for the truth, truth isn't going to shy away from any kind of opposition or anybody who wants to examine it. Truth is going to stand firm. So we're in Acts. Acts has shown Jesus' witnesses fulfilling his mission after Jesus rose from the dead and went back to heaven. Um, the end of chapter 15. This is where we left off a couple weeks ago when we were here. Uh, you had... Uh, Paul and Silas, who were going to go back to some of the churches that they had planted. And so Acts 16 picks up with them visiting some of those churches that they had planted previously. And so the question we're going to try to answer tonight, and you've got 
you've got notes there in your bulletin. You've got, I think, four statements. We want to give you four um, things that Christianity offers for people who are either unsure about it. Maybe, maybe you're even... Um, so that probably you fit maybe into one of these categories, okay? Maybe you're unsure about Christianity. You're still trying to figure out if it's for you. Maybe you're a Christian, but you're sort of ashamed by it. Like you have to go to a school where most people aren't Christians, and so it's easy to think, um, you know, I'm the oddball, so to speak. Um, or maybe you're, you're inquisitive about Christianity. Maybe you're like, yeah, I really want to follow Jesus. I try to follow Jesus, but I got lots of questions, and I want to make sure Christianity is going to stand up to it. Maybe these four statements that come that I think we can get from this passage tonight uh, can be helpful. So we'll try to go through them quickly, and then we'll see if we can discuss them in our groups. Uh, the first thing that Christianity offers is this. Number one, Christianity connects human responsibility and divine sovereignty. It connects human responsibility and divine sovereignty. So I, I want us to define those terms so we can make sure everybody's on the same page. What do we mean by human responsibility or we're all humans, so we could just say responsibility. What do you suppose that might mean? How many of you would consider yourselves responsible? A couple of the upperclassmen? That's good. A few middle scores. That's good. What does it mean to be responsible? Just generally. Okay, doing what you need to do, staying on top of things. Okay. Uh, it means making a conscious choice or an effort to see to it that things happen, right? Things don't happen unless you are responsible to carry them out. Normally is what we mean by that. Uh, and, and those actions and those choices have consequences, right? So for you to do something, say something, act a certain way, make a certain choice, there are consequences. Things either excuse me, are going to happen or aren't going to happen based on what you do or don't do. That's what it means to be responsible. Does that sound about right? Okay. What do we mean when we talk about divine sovereignty? Someone want to take a stab at defining divine sovereignty. What does, it mean? What does divine mean? Of God, right? So sovereignty, if it, sovereignty of God would mean that what? Okay, God's in control. He has authority, he has, he has power, he has rulership over all things. He's divine, he's God, he's in charge, he controls all things. Now, to most people, it might seem that those two things are exclusive, like they can't actually go together. Either God is in complete control of everything so that I'm kind of off the hook, or I'm ultimately responsible and God gives me the, the freedom to sort of choose which, you know, whatever it is that I want or need to do. So this can be some this could require us to do some deep thinking to try to make sense of this and we're not going to go into all the aspects of it but but here's why I think uh, this matters is, is that the Bible and, and our passage here even shows us that both of those things can be true at the same time. God can be completely in control of all things and yet you and I also have serious consequences for what we do and how we think and even even what we don't do. So um, I want to notice how humans are responsible in this passage. Think about even what we looked at last time. Um, Paul says, I want to go around and visit the churches we planted. Did God necessarily, as far as we can tell, uh, tell him to do that? Was he commanded to do that? Not as far as we can tell. 
So he does, he does, Paul doesn't say, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said I needed to go back to these places. Paul was making a choice. He had the freedom to do that. He even had the freedom to not take Barnabas because they disagreed. He's like, you know what? Um, I'm going to take Silas with me instead. So he's making a choice. Those, they had consequences. In this case, actually good consequences because now there were two missionary teams instead of one. Uh, look at chapter 16 and verse uh, 1. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews. I, I, I don't guess I'd ever paid much attention to that statement before because it really struck me like, how fast of friends did Paul and Timothy have to become that, they were, that Paul was comfortable circumcising Timothy? Like, quickly, apparently. It really doesn't matter, but it just crossed my mind. Um, he wanted Timothy, and, and again, we don't see here, like maybe it's sort of just assumed, we don't see Paul saying, like, the Lord told me to do this. It's just Paul's making choices. Hey, I want Timothy on my team, so he takes him for his team. Hey, I'm going to go to these places. Uh, he's, he's making these choices, and, and if you look at verse 4 and 5, they went on their way through the cities. Um, they told them about the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So remember, again, they'd met in Jerusalem. They're debating all this doctrine. They come to these conclusions, and, um, and, and Paul's passing it along to the churches. They made these decisions. Now they prayed, but yes, they're, they're making these decisions on their own. Verse 5 says that, that the churches benefited from this. They were strengthened in the faith. They increased in numbers. Um, again, Paul, Paul and, and these missionary teams, they're making choices. They're responsible for their choices. They're making good choices. The Lord seems to be taking care of them. And yet, look at verse 6. It's a totally like different flip of the script because verse 6, uh, you, you begin to notice that they make choices and yet God um, overrides some of their choices, right? So verse 6, they went through the region of Phrygia and, and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Here's what that probably means. They tried to go to Asia, but they couldn't. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let them for whatever reason. Same thing in verse 7. When they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So here they are making choices, wanting to go to certain places, and the Lord is not allowing them. So the Lord overrode some of their choices. Aaron and I were actually talking about this um, today, Aaron and I have have a plan for most of your lives. Okay, uh, this morning we were, spe- we were specifically talking about Grant. Grant wants to go somewhere in the world. We kind of want Grant to go somewhere else in the world. Um, so, so you know, I'm saying, well, he can go here first, and then he can go there. And then Aaron says, yeah, you know, that sounds good to me. And then Aaron threw in this phrase, but God is sovereign. So Grant can try to go wherever he wants, but God might override that. So, so keep that in mind. He did it here for Paul, and if he did it for Paul, he could do it for any of us as well. So how then should you and I think about making decisions? Uh, would it be a good idea for us to just wait for the will of God by like sitting around and hoping he writes it in the sky? I, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, you'd be sitting a while. Um... You know, it's, it's, if you just delay uh, decision-making until it's abundantly clear, you'll probably never actually make a decision. So, 
Here's what Scripture seems to indicate. Pray about things. Try things out. You might, you might fail. You might get deterred. That's okay. It happened even to Paul and his missionary team. Uh, maybe somebody else's decision is going gonna, is gonna to kind of force you to make a decision. Maybe there are other people in your life who have a lot of wisdom and you should ask them for their advice. That's an okay thing to do as well. So most of you are in school right now. In school, guess what? You're figuring out what you're good at and what you're not good at. You're trying to maximize what your gifts are. You're trying to, to know even your weaknesses and maybe either to minimize them or, or enhance them. Um, it's, good to, it's good to know how to connect with people so that you can uh, be involved in other people's lives and they can be in, involved in your lives. But as you make decisions, guess what you're going to realize? God is ultimately in control. All right? Now, that's living that way, rather than being afraid of the future, um, living that way where you're, you're confident that God is in control, that actually validates Christianity in front of people who, who might question, question it. All right? So, Christianity offers that connection between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Here's the second thing. Christianity provides steadfastness Regardless of circumstances, Christianity provides steadfastness regardless of circumstances. <clears throat> if, if you keep reading, and by the way, I, I hate that I can't read uh, large chunks of this. I could, but we would never break into small groups. Uh, so, I'll, I'll repeat something. I, I don't think I have said this enough lately, but... Man, I really hope you're reading these chapters on your own because for you just to take uh, my word for what this says is really un- unwise. Yeah, don't do that at all. Uh, read, these, read these passages, read these chapters. You know, everybody can read a few chapters of the Bible every week. Uh, and that, and I'll, that way I can just try to uh, summarize a lot of what's here. Um, the Holy Spirit actually does give them very clear direction to go to Macedonia. When they go to Macedonia, they come to a city... Uh, in Philippi, immediately they're looking for people to share the gospel with. Uh, look at verse uh, 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And it turns out that one of the women they talked to, her name is Lydia, she is converted. She believes. She trusts Christ. She's baptized. Uh, shortly after that, uh, probably a day or two later, they're walking through the city. There's a young girl there who's demon-possessed, and Paul's able to cast a demon out of her. Now, if, if you go to a city, and within the first couple of days there, you see people are, are saved, and you see people um, go from serving demons to serving Christ, would you think that that's successful? Yes, you would be right. Uh, and, and so, if your ministry seems successful, it could lead to you thinking, well, everything, everything is great. Usually, the more successful we are, the more quick we are maybe to, you know, to be happier, to rejoice, to even give God the glory. But it turns out that this girl that they met with actually uh, turned out to be a source of trouble. The girl had been uh, somewhat of a, a moneymaker for some of these guys in the city because she, um, she, she would uh, make predictions about the future. She was kind of like a fortune teller. Uh, so, so they would make money off of her. Well, these uh, guys didn't like that their slave girl wasn't predicting the future for them anymore. So they found Paul and, his, and Silas and their team, and uh, they begin accusing them, like, you are disturbing our city, is what they say. And so, and so they, uh, they capture them, 
They beat them. They throw them in prison. All of a sudden, so let's let's ask the question a different way then. So now, your ministry, you're not seeing people saved. Instead, you are falsely accused, you are beaten, and you are thrown in prison. Does that sound like successful ministry? Not so much, right? Then, it's a lot harder to praise God, isn't it? It's a lot harder to think, man, I want to keep doing this. But look at verse 25. About midnight, this is in prison, about midnight, Paul and Silas were, what? Praying and singing hymns to God. Okay? So, some of you might think that when we pray and we sing hymns, it feels like prison. You might actually be right, because apparently that's what was happening here in Acts 16. Um, Paul and Silas, in prison, bound, uh, are singing hymns to God and praying. So, let's think about this. Um, Do you suppose that when they were out in the streets... Um, sharing the gospel and seeing people converted, do you think that they were worshiping the Lord? I think so. It was probably pretty easy to do, right? And yet, circumstances are totally different, and yet what are they still doing? Worshiping the Lord, right? Now, uh, God, if, as we keep reading there, verse uh, 26 tells us that suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's bronze were un. Fastened. God miraculously intervened. He sent the earthquake. It loosed their chains, just like he had done with Peter previously in the book of Acts. And then, through this event, this allows Paul and Silas to have a conversation with the jailer, the guy in charge of uh, keeping the prisoners in prison, and yet he couldn't do it. And, uh, and he is actually ready to just end it for himself. He's suicidal. He knows his life is... is uh, He's going to be taken from him. So he gets ready to actually take his own life. And Paul says, do yourself no harm. We're all still here. That man is converted. He and his whole family come to faith in Christ. So, do you think if Paul and Silas in prison had just moped around and stayed quiet, do you think that they would have spoken up to the jailer about their faith? No. And I'm, and I'm not saying that, that God set them free only because they sang the right songs or prayed the right prayers. They didn't know God was going to set them free. They were worshiping. They thought they might be in prison, you know, inevitably. But they're praying. They're, they're worshiping. They're singing. Uh, it gives them an opportunity to testify about their faith uh, because they were faithful. So the next day they were released from the city. Now those actions and those reactions, they do not make any sense if Christianity is not true, Right? So, think about how you and I are about our faith most of the time. I'm afraid that most of the time, you and I live and act and react as though our faith is not true at all. Or at least useless to us. Because a lot of times, our attitudes about things are determined by our situation, by our circumstances. Rather than, rather than whether or not we're trusting in the Lord. Okay, so, so, so think about yourself. Think about your own life right now. What situation might you be facing that is affecting your testimony before other people? Are you allowing something going on in your life to, um, to make you an ineffective witness for Christ? Now, that's not to say there aren't really hard things in life, because there are. Yet, if God is real, if our faith is real, if Christianity is true then there's nothing that happens that's outside of God's control. Nothing is hopeless. 
So whether things go great for us or things go terrible for us, we can be prayerful and worshipful. That's the second point. Number three, Christianity delivers answers for universal questions. Christianity delivers answers for universal questions. In, in the next two chapters, in Acts 17 and 18, uh, we see Paul going to at least five cities. And in each city, his strategy is the same. So we're not going to go through all these encounters. I'll just kind of summarize. Um, we'll look a little closer at one. But Paul would always go, some of you may know this. I think we mentioned it a couple weeks ago. Paul, Paul would always go to what people group first and try to evangelize them. To the Jews first, right? Because he himself was a Jew. He had that connection with them. Uh, where did the Jews meet? In a place called the synagogues, gathering together a uh, place for Jews. So he would go to the synagogue. They would have the scriptures there, the Old Testament scriptures. And from the Old Testament, Paul would uh, reason with the people and show them even from the Old Testament the truth about Jesus. And people would, there would always be some sort of mixed reaction. Some people would believe. Some people would be really upset. Now, um, after he went to the Jews, then Paul would go just to pretty much anybody, right? Gentiles, Greeks, all kinds of people groups. Well, that made the Jews really jealous. Um, to the point that, that they would then oppose Paul for what he did. Paul and his team for what they uh, we're doing, and so and so, Paul would actually leave the city. So again, think about how this is strategic. Go to the people first you have connections with, spread out from there, and if you're opposed, just leave. Right? Paul wasn't trying to be martyred. Um, you know, if 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 there wasn't uh, any place for witness there, he would he would go somewhere else. Um, so you see you see this happen in these in these five cities. I do want to point out. Um, what happened in Berea, very quickly, number uh, chapter 17 and verse um, 11. This relates to what we were mentioning earlier. 17.11, These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. That's actually kind of a surprising uh, phrase because there's really nothing wrong with the Jews in Thessalonica as far as we can tell. Like, they were pretty noble. And yet, the Bereans apparently were more noble, verse 11 says, because... They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Um, they practiced what I was talking about a little bit ago. They didn't just take Paul's word for what scripture says. They read it for themselves. They compared it to what they um, saw in the scriptures. I'm trying to figure out how much how how deep I want to go with this because um, we could be here all night. I don't want to do that. Let's do this. Um, let me summarize very quickly what happens in um, in Athens. Uh, Paul goes to to the to the Greek city of Athens, and and again his strategy his strategy is the same. He goes to the synagogue, he finds Jews there, and yet. Um, he actually apparently has a little more success going to the marketplace. Look at verse 17. So Acts 17, 17. Uh, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
and, and you begin to read about these people who would go into the marketplace. They, they were into philosophy. Uh, Paul begins to have conversations, and they're like, who is this guy? What's he talking about? And, uh, and they said, well, he's, he's talking about some kind of foreign god. And um, this actually is sort of um, kind of ignites their curiosity a little bit. They want to know more. They like discussing philosophy. Tell us more about this foreign religion, Paul. And so he does. And you have a, a, a sermon there from him from, verses 22, from verse 22 all the way down to about verse 31. And um, he acknowledges to them, he's like, look, you guys are obviously very religious. He says, on my way here, you had this statue that you were offering to a God you don't even know, to the unknown God. Paul's like, let me tell you about a God you don't even know. And so he shares with them about the God of the Old Testament, how he's a creator, how he's the judge, how he has raised the dead. And as you might expect, there's a, there's a variety of responses to, to, uh, responses to this. Some people believe. Some people think he's kooky. Uh, some people want to get rid of him. And uh, he, you know, he, of course, deals with all this the same way that he dealt with the others. He, he uh, talks to who he can, but then he eventually just leaves. Now, most, um, most people when they teach through this passage, they really emphasize the fact that to make a connection with them, uh, Paul quotes a, uh, a guy who apparently to them was like a, a famous uh, poet, a couple of famous poets, okay? Um, and he shows them how even their own, what we would think of as secular poetic writings, point to the truth of who God really is. Okay, so, so imagine how this might work for us. Um, how many of you are like okay confessing that you sometimes listen to non-Christian music? Okay, great. Uh, we'll, we'll have counseling available for all of you later. I'm kidding. It's a joke. Um, what? This is sort of like Paul knowing what was playing on the popular Athens radio stations and saying, "Hey, you know that song." that uh, mentions, and then you look at verse 28, he says, um, and he, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. And then the other quote there in verse 28, for indeed we are his offspring. So he's quoting these lines from these poems that are popular in their day, and he's going to show them how what they're singing, they don't even realize how true what they're singing really is. So, so it's possible, Paul shows us, it's possible to be engaged with culture enough to be able to even show um, through, through what's popular among the people and use that to point them to what is really true. Okay, I, saw, I saw a video yesterday. Um, it's, it's a minute and a half of solid gold is what it is, where um, this guy, you guys know the, uh, the movie Karate Kid? Okay, the original. The original, yeah. Not Will Smith's kid. Um. The original. So uh, this guy takes like 90 seconds, and, and, and he's, he's a believer, and he explains how uh, the gospel is like abundantly clear in the story of the Karate Kid. You ever watch the Karate Kid and, like, and, and, and pick up on the gospel in the Karate Kid? I haven't seen the Karate Kid in like decades, so I don't know. Anyways, if you want to see this guy explain it, it's, it's brilliant. And and he could so so he could then have a conversation. He could you know just talk to somebody. Hey, you ever seen the Karate Kid? Well, let me tell you how it points to the true story of the world. 
Uh, and that's the kind of strategy that's involved in those kinds of conversations. Because for some of these guys, um, just talking about religion or talking about poetry or talking about philosophy was just a hobby for them. Okay? All of us have hobbies. All of us enjoy having conversations. The key is how to use those conversations and ultimately point people to what is truly real. Um, how, how do you relate it to, to the truths like God is, that, that God exists and that we are made in His image and yet we've offended Him highly and so we are under His wrath. We're deserving of judgment and punishment and yet God in His love sent Christ for us uh, to bear our sin, to be punished in our place, to rise from the dead so that we also can have hope uh, of rising from the dead one day. That's the message that we all need to hear and believe and tell others about. So, um, maybe you have some of those questions about Christianity. Maybe you haven't yet surrendered to Christ completely. Uh, we want to show you how Christianity can answer those questions, or even how Christianity can, can help you ask the right questions. Number four. Christianity reveals its power through the Scriptures. Christianity reveals its power through the Scriptures. Um, the, the passage here, the chap, chapter 18, closes um, with this introduction to a man named Apollos. Apollos was a very gifted teacher. He was a believer. He was interested in teaching the Scriptures. He, he apparently did so very well. Um, he he um, even... Uh, in, in well, let's let me say it the way it's worded here. Um, verse twenty-four: A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Uh, that's that's a way of saying that. The things he knew about, he taught really well, but he didn't know enough, really, to be qualified to teach the way that he was. And so there's a, there's a couple, man and wife, in the church there that said, hey, let's teach you some more. And so this guy humbles himself, he receives instruction, um, and then he goes to another church in another city in Corinth, and, it's, and, and they even wrote a letter of recommendation, said, hey, you need to have this guy there as a teacher. Receive him, welcome him. And so that's what happens there and then verse 28 says that he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. What does that have to do with with us? Um, I think it shows us first of all that all disciples, all believers, uh, even those of us who teach need to be teachable. Okay, I, I need to continue to be instructed and to be humble and teachable. Uh, and no matter what your gifts are, some of you some of you are good teachers. Some of you have other gifts. Whatever they are, it's good to still continue to be trained in your gifts. Um, and, and then, but I also think, and this probably is the main thing it shows us, that the, the message of Christianity is powerful because of Scripture, not because of anybody who teaches it. Right? This, guy, this guy's message was effective because he showed from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So, so don't be intimidated by the Bible. Um, seek to seek to go deep in it. Understand it as much as you can. Trust what it says. Uh, be empowered by it rather than shrink back from it. Now, these four truths um, show us that God ultimately is in charge of what He accomplishes in our lives, what He can accomplish through His Word. 
Yes, there's, there's uh, steps you and I can take to engage our culture, and we ought to do it. But we can do it confidently because we ultimately know it's not up to us. Uh, God has worked this whole thing out. God's going to fulfill what He promises in His Word, and we get to be a part of it. So I pray that we will. Let's pray. Father, for myself and for each of us in here, I pray you would make us instruments, effective instruments of yours that we might engage the culture around us unashamedly, knowing that what we have read about tonight from your word, about you, about your son, Jesus, about the state of mankind apart from Christ, those things are true and real. So we don't have to apologize for those things. Uh, Help us to know how to effectively speak those things into our culture, how to model them, how to live them out, how to do so humbly, how to be teachable, and yet also how to be, how to be confident uh, as we stand for these things. Lord, uh, we can only do this if, if we uh, truly love you and love others, and so we need you to show us how to do that. Thank you uh, for the model of that love toward us on the cross by your Son, Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.